Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast from the University of Oxford. I'm Guy Collander and every month we speak to a former Oxford student about their memories of their alma mater and life after Oxford. In this podcast, historian Dr Oliver Cox shares his passion for England's greatest landscape designer, Capability Brown. His reflections serve as a taster for his talk about Brown's extraordinary achievements, including the beautiful grounds at Blenheim Palace. That talk takes place on 18th of September at the 10th Alumni Weekend in Oxford. We will also hear about Dr Cox's love of Oxford. He has three history degrees from Oxford University, which now employs him as a Heritage Engagement Fellow. More about that later. Dr Cox also talks about his pioneering work to promote and understand country houses via the Thames Valley Country House Partnership, an organisation he created to link entrepreneurs in the heritage sector with researchers at Oxford. Dr Cox, thank you for taking part in this podcast series. Thank you very much for having me. Let's begin, first of all, with Capability Brown. This year marks the tercentenary of his birth, so it's an appropriate time to recognise his achievements. What impresses you about his work? I think the thing that really impresses me about Capability Brown is that in the way that the poems of Wordsworth, the plays of Shakespeare are all part of our national consciousness, so too are the landscapes of Capability Brown. And I think the real challenge we've had this year in the tercentenary celebrations is that Capability Brown is at his most successful where he's the least noticed. He creates work that is seen as so natural that nature herself is given the credit. So I think what really impresses me about Brown's work is how for 40 years during the 18th century, he remained at the cutting edge of taste. You know, to have a Capability Brown landscape was a showpiece item in your collection. Having a Capability Brown landscape is like having, a, you know, the biggest Jaguar or Land Rover you can imagine. It's an amazing British product. Where Brown is hugely successful is that he, he corners the market. He creates a brilliant product that everybody wants. He gives you a set of craftsmen and, you know, contractors who are able to deliver the project. And I think thirdly, he's, he's, he's the greatest salesman that God ever put breath into because how do you convince someone to invest in something that they won't see the product of in their lifetime? Their grandson may see a bit of it, but it's only really the great and great, great grandsons that see these landscapes in their full maturity. And the other thing that is, of course, hugely impressive is at a time when transport links are improving, but still, no, there's no railways, there's no motorways, there's none of that. Brown works up and down the country. He works at over 240 landscapes, stretching down from Devon right up to sort of Annick in Northumbria. And what can we expect to hear during your talk, during the upcoming Alumni Weekend? So my, my talk, which is called Lancelot's Legacy, is, is really looking at how Capability Brown became important, again, from the middle of the 1930s onwards. And I think one of the thing that... One of the things that really frustrates me about landscape history and garden history at the moment as a discipline is I feel it's fundamentally irrelevant because we're so caught up in narrow issues of, of attribution and discussion about who did what that we're actually failing to miss the broader issue here, which is that we're at a, a real sort of pivot point in the way in which humans relate to landscape in the connections between you know urban growth and rural preservation. And I feel that the idea of 
preservation by sterilization is the way in which is a surefire way of ensuring these places die what we need to do is create a bridge into relevance and what alumni that come to my talk will hear in september is is my attempt to unravel the first moment of relevance for capability brown in the 1930s 1940s and 1950s a time when he's he's rehabilitated as a national hero he's rediscovered as someone that can speak to the very particular circumstances of the interwar period and the post-war period namely how do we rebuild britain along british lines but taking into account all of the latest European technological developments. So it's very much as I'd like to think it's a speech of our times in our in our post-Brexit mad world. You know, what we need to anchor us is a good bit of capability brown. And one of the challenges I think this year in the tercentenary has been that that Brown's very Englishness can be quite off-putting. Whereas actually I feel that Brown is very much a European architect. He's taking ideas and inspiration from the continent and he's refashioning it and repurposing it to suit an English audience. So what we have is an incredible landscape designer, an incredible Englishman who's in dialogue with Europe rather than turning his back on Europe. He has been viewed in so many different ways and his persona has evolved over those, those generations. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Guy. I think the really interesting thing about these national heroes such as Capability Brown is they reflect the uncertainties and anxieties of the age that is looking at, at them. So, so Brown at the moment, the question is, is he European or not? And is he relevant or not? I think at the same time, we're battling with these issues of, of what aspect of our past do we use to take forward into the future? And for me, I feel that's why the Olympic opening ceremony of 2012 was so successful, because it said we have all of this past, but we're also forward looking. And this is about using the past as an inspiration to create a better future. What I worry about at the moment with all that's happened politically, this sort of imagined nostalgia that 51% of the population voted for, is that history is now being used to sort of instrumentalise a, 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 an almost, yeah, a return to this imagined past that never existed. And I think for me as a historian, that's especially interesting. You are doubly qualified to take part in the Alumni Weekend, being both a member of Oxford staff and an alumnus. What are you hoping to get out of the event? I'm really looking forward to the Alumni Weekend um, because there'll be some fantastic questions. I know that for sure. Um, you know, people that are, were once historians, you know, you never, you never quite stop being a historian. So I'm sure there'll be a fellow alumna that will have hu and a whole range of difficult, complicated and challenging questions to pin me down on. So I'm looking forward to that. But I think, I think more... More broadly, I'm just looking forward to to getting that that sense of enthusiasm, connection, and excitement that that you always get from having been an Oxford man or woman. You know, you you feel a you feel a really good tie to this place as a place that sort of had some you know really hopefully really happy memories as well. And you have an undoubted attachment to Oxford. You studied history here for your BA, Master of Studies, and Doctorate, all at University College. Now you work here. What has kept you in the city? The reason I'm still here is for the kind of work that I do, which is about linking brilliant research with the public. There is no better place in the country to do it, if not the world, you know, and certainly from a historian's perspective, you know, we're the biggest history faculty in, in Europe, if not the world. So how could I turn my back on this place? Because it is it is the best place for me 
personally to do what I want to do. And aside from your studies and historical research, what do you enjoy about Oxford? There are a couple of things. I think one, that it's a city that punches above its weight. You know, if you look at the figures, you know, we're not that big a city, but yet we have a sort of global reach in terms of our arts and heritage. I mean, having the Ashmolean on the doorstep is absolutely fabulous. As a keen cyclist, you know, the fact that you've got the whole of the Oxfordshire Cotswolds at your disposal, absolutely brilliant. The other thing that's kept me in the city is that Oxford doesn't stay still. You know, I think the fascinating thing is we have a stage set that remains largely permanent, but we have a changing cast of characters that ebb and flow every year. So being one of the few people that's remained here has actually meant I've met more people by staying put than I would have done had I moved to London. And you are the Heritage Engagement Fellow at the Oxford Research Centre in Humanities, also known as TORCH. What does this involve? My new role as Heritage Engagement Fellow is is hugely exciting because what it gives me the opportunity to be is essentially the shop window for the outside world, well, in terms of the heritage sector, uh, to work with Oxford. I think one of the real challenges from an external organisation's perspective is Oxford is incredibly hard to navigate. You don't know who the right person to talk to is. And really what my role is about is about simplifying that process, being a sort of one-stop shop for external organisations, be they the National Trust, a sort of major institutional partner for the university now, or through to small privately owned museums, heritage sites, to give them access to this enormous reservoir of information that's contained not only within the libraries and collections of the University of Oxford, but also within our staff and within our people. And that actually for external organisations to work with us is a real treat. And I think that's one of the really exciting parts of my job is essentially matchmaking that relationship between an external organisation that wants to know more about their history, their heritage, their story, and the academic experts within the university that can help them with that. I mean, a a fantastic example of how this works in, in, in practice was a story that hopefully many people listening to this will remember in April of this year where we discovered a Shakespeare first folio on the Isle of Butte in the collections of a country house called Mount Stuart. And this was exactly, uh, is a prime example of how to do this kind of matchmaking thing. While I was there, we got into a broader conversation about actually, you know, how do we unlock the latent potential of this phenomenal collection? And it seemed that this discovery of the first folio was the best way of doing it. Obviously doing lots of silo busting and un- uncovering things within Oxford and yeah. academic expertise as well as, as Shakespeare's first folio. What has been very interesting has been, has been, as you said, drawing and connecting across a variety of different silos. What we've been able to prove is that heritage is a hugely dynamic place to be working because it has an audience in terms of the great British public. It has a variety of beautiful venues. And yet it's got all of this untapped resource in terms of the stories that we can tell using these collections. And these aren't just historians working here. This is people from, you know, medical sciences, from, you know, mobile robotics through into heritage science and the School of Geography. Heritage is a great way of encouraging interdisciplinarity. And you created the Thames Valley Country House Partnership in 2013 to connect entrepreneurs in the heritage sector with researchers at Oxford. How is that initiative progressing? The aim of the Thames Valley Country House Partnership is to give people within Oxford, university staff members and students, be it from first year undergraduate through to Regis Professor, 
the opportunity to do something meaningful and tangible with a local heritage asset. And one of the most successful parts of that has been internships. So for students, for our students who want to get into the heritage museums, galleries sector, it's an absolute nightmare. And the Ashmolean and the Oxford University Museums are doing fantastic work to encourage greater familiarity with their collections, to work with curators and staff within the university. But I'm interested in how do we replicate that best practice and take it outside, take it into these houses. So that's, if you like, that's been the most rewarding thing for me has to be, has, you know, being seen over the last three years, we had over 30 interns who've had a really meaningful experience. And coming back to the landscape, as well as studying capability Brown's work, you have battled against his creations, including the man-made lake at Blenheim during the Blenheim Triathlon. Did this give you a different perspective on Brown's landscaping and the, the effort involved in creating these, these um, incredible grounds? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I think one of the very interesting things about doing a triathlon in a capability brown landscape, not just Blenheim, you can do them at Stowe, you can do them at Chatsworth, you can do it at Petworth. Um, brown, in many ways, created the perfect sporting arena um, uh, for 21st century triathlon, but also for sort of 18th, 18th century leisure pursuits. And what you get is a true sense of how these landscapes were meant to be used. The lake is there to take a small boat out on and you get a fantastic view of the house, often reflected in the lake water, which makes it look twice as big. You know, they were into airbrushing in the 18th century. They could do they could do that, no problem. So actually, when you're in the middle of the lake at Blenheim and you're swimming along, you're thinking, oh, actually, yeah, that is quite a nice view of the house. <laughs> but the other, the other thing that's very interesting about being in the water is you realise how Brown's manipulation of sight lines is so effective because as you're swimming along at Blenheim, you can never quite see the end of the damn lake. So uh, because it's always just around the corner and, you know, when you're traveling, you know, in a carriage or you're walking around, that's a lovely thrill. When you're desperately trying to get to the end of the damn swim, it's exhausting and quite frustrating. When you're when you're cycling around the landscape, I think where that's so exciting is you get a sense of what it must have been like to go around on horseback. As a young researcher, you already have an incredibly impressive CV. What can we expect next? My main, you know, my aim within Oxford is that I want to create something called OCA, the Oxford Centre for Heritage Research and Engagement. And what it does is grow the track record that I've already demonstrated over the last three years, increase our reach. You know, we need to be international. We need to be global in our understanding of heritage. And I think having one access point, one central part, place within the university that does all of this is the way that we can do it. Because what we can then do is match up demand with supply. And um, that's my big long-term aim in Oxford. I'm not going anywhere yet. I want to build this in Oxford. And then, um, you know, who knows? Who knows what happens after that? Well, good luck with that. And do thank keep you. us posted as things develop. Thank you very much. Dr Oliver Cox, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about Capability Brown, Oxford and Country Houses. To book your place at Dr Cox's talk at the Alumni Weekend and for more episodes of Alumni Voices, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.